We've been moving over the past uh, several months through Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Our New Testament complementary passage is John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. So if you could open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 4, in honor of God's Word, please stand. John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, hear God's word. There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than all? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read, we come to the hearing of your word and the preaching of it. We pray that you would open our eyes, quench that thirst, satisfy us with the gospel in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So when I was seven years old, my brother, who went to a boarding school 
here in the United States, came for a summer visit to Palestine, where I was raised. So I'm seven years old, and he was 16. And he came up with a great idea, which was to do this overnight camping trip in a cave. It's called the Cave of Abdullam, which is in the middle of the Negev. And it's about a two and a half hour walk from the road, a hike back through these canyons and mountains to get back to the Cave of Abdullam. Now, because I was seven years old, I don't remember this objectively. Maybe I whined and got dad to force my brother to take me on the trip. Maybe my brother uh, volunteered to take me on the trip. Somehow I ended up on this overnight camping trip. Now, if any of you are parents of teenagers, and specifically teenage boys, you know exactly how this trip went. The 16-year-old taking his 7-year-old brother into an overnight camping trip in the middle of the Sinai in a cave. There were a host of stories that came out of that trip. My brother pretending that we were lost. My brother blowing out the candles and pretending he couldn't find the matches. My brother doing all of these things to terrify and torment his poor seven-year-old brother. But one of the things that stands out most vividly in my memory from this trip is when we were leaving the next morning, my father was going to meet us at a predetermined spot on the roadside in the middle of the desert again at noon. And so we woke up. It's about a two and a half hour hike to get back to the road. And we start off on our trip. And my brother has me carry the water jar, water can. And it was a, I don't know, 25-gallon jerry can, whatever those big blue things are, that this seven-year-old kid is supposed to be carrying on his back to the road. And I was complaining bitterly. This thing is way too heavy. I can't do it. I'm dragging it in the dirt behind me. My brother keeps saying, just wait a little bit, and I'll swap out with you. And so you carry it halfway, I'll carry it the last half of the way. So whether on design or just coincidentally, I lagged behind enough that when my brother went around a corner in the path and could no longer see me, I came up with the bright idea of pouring all the water out of the jerry can which made the jerry can much easier to carry and which lightened my spirits incredibly until I went around the corner and my brother was standing there, presumably felt guilty and said, here, hand me the jerry can, I'll take it from here. And discovered it was empty. And so we get to the place where we're supposed to be picked up by dad. And I don't know how long we waited there. It felt like a week. I was thirsty. My brother was thirsty. He was so irate at me. He was only prevented from continually yelling at me because of his need to preserve whatever bodily fluid he had. Because our lips were cracking. We're in the middle of the desert and we are thirsty. And that's where the children of Israel are. 
the same desert. And they are thirsty. And so they cry out to Moses. Since they've left Egypt, this is now the third time that they have entered into difficulty. And increasingly, they've handled the difficulty badly. At first, they come to a place where the waters are bitter. And they cry out, and God tells Moses to throw the log in and makes the water sweet. But then they say, we had it better back in Egypt. We had, we sat beside pots full of meat. We had all the food we could ever want. You brought us out here to kill us. It was better off back in Egypt. As we pointed out last week, this is six weeks after the Exodus. Six weeks after slavery, their children being drowned in the Nile River, Pharaoh and all his armies charging down, wanting to slaughter them all and take them back into captivity. Six weeks later, they're saying, Ah, it wasn't so bad. This was really hard out here. You've brought us out here to kill us. And so God, in response, literally rains bread from heaven, feeds them with manna. Last week, their response to their difficulty was grumbling. And I don't know if you noticed in the passage this week, they're not grumbling, they're quarreling. They've moved their level of disobedience, their level of rebellion, up a notch. So much so that Moses says to God, they're about to stone me. Their level of discontent and their level of disobedience increasingly ramps up. While God's provision and grace remains constant. Powerful. Miraculous. So, as with the plagues earlier, I want to look at this passage first in the immediate context, which is the event. The event that's laid out pretty straightforwardly there in your text. We'll notice, we'll notice a couple of interesting things about this event. But we'll look at this event as it's laid out in the text. And then secondly, we'll look at what this text is showing us about the grand tapestry. So the increasing opposition, as, we, as we've walked through these three events now, this is now the third of these three events, the increasing opposition to God, to His care, to His leadership, and God's continually providing graciously and mercifully to them. The other, the other thing that stands out from this text is you may not have noticed the geographic location uh, that's mentioned here in verse 1. They camped at Rephidim. But then later in the same passage in verse 6, Behold, I will stand 
before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, if you've been with us in Exodus, do you remember Horeb? That is the mountain where Moses met God. It's another name for Mount Sinai. And so we're, we're getting, we're getting kind of an advance in the, in the narrative here, an advance in the drama as God is bringing the people by stages closer to this pivotal event where he gives to them his law, where he gives to them the Ten Commandments. So there is a progress geographically that's going on here while there's also a progress spiritually, or more strictly, a declension spiritually as they continue to increase their hostility to Moses. And at the end of the day, God is showing them the same thing that he showed Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh's response to Moses saying, God has said, let my people go. What was Pharaoh's response? Who's God? Who's Jehovah? Who's, I don't know any Jehovah's around here. Who is this guy? And Jehovah God says, okay, <laughs> all right, you want to know who I am? You're going to get to know me really well, Pharaoh. You and all your kingdom are going to know exactly who I am. And do you see how God is doing this to the nation of Israel? They close this text they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's their test. Is exactly the same test that Pharaoh had. The exact same question. Is God real? Is God powerful? Is God in control? Both the Egyptians and the Israelites are facing the exact same issue. Who is this God? But from the Israelite perspective, the question is, is he trustworthy? Is he faithful? Can I place my life in his hands? And very literally, this is wandering through a desert. No grazing for your cattle. No rivers to walk alongside. Wandering through a desert being led by God, is he faithful? Is he trustworthy? That's interesting, again, in this passage. God makes a point of saying, I want you to take the very rod with which you struck the waters of the Nile. That same physical sign of God's power, of God's activity, becomes something that turns water into death. But now here, turns a rock into life-giving water. This, this same God, the same minister of God, the same tangible sign, for one, becomes an instrument of destruction, and for another, becomes an instrument of life-giving rescue. Who is this God? And is, for the Israelite, 
be worthy of trust. And that's the lesson that God is teaching here in this desert. And it also brings us then to back up from the event just a little bit. To back up and look at this larger tapestry of the very testing of the desert wilderness narratives. Because not only last week, but also this week, they test. The Israelites test God. Now, this place is called Masa and Meribah. Now, that's the transliteration of the Hebrew. And so, Masa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. And so you can see what Moses is doing literal, literarily. <laughs> I'm sure there's the right way of saying that somewhere, but in, in terms of the literature, you can see what Moses is doing here because he says he called the name of the place testing and quarreling because there they quarreled and tested. So what do you think the big theme of this passage is? <laughs> He called the place testing and quarreling because there they quarreled and they tested. It's focusing in on this response, this very spiritually horrible activity of God's chosen people who have just been redeemed by His mighty and outstretched hand. And so here in these passages, and we'll see it again uh, in, in the next section, you see an inversion of the plagues. The plagues are God's bringing disaster into an otherwise fertile land. The Nile, the fish, all of the goodness of Egypt, the wheat, the, all of the things that are good about Egypt, God destroys. And now here in the wilderness, all of the things that are terrible about the wilderness. No food, he's going to rain bread from heaven. No water, he's going to smack a rock and it's going to gush forth water. And then, as we'll see in the next passage, terrible, dangerous enemies, he's going to provide miraculously there as well. But in the backdrop of that is this quarreling, this testing. Now, I hope you've seen just in, in our worship service today, I hope you've, I hope that you've picked up. I always, I always think I'm being so clever by, by pulling these themes together and carefully trying to think what goes with what. But then I wonder, you know, <laughs> did, do, am I just being like super overly clever and people really don't get uh, what I'm trying to do? I mean, I'll give you an example. Why do you think we sing psalms? Why do you think we sing older hymns? Why do you think we sing newer hymns? You see, the children of Israel are having to forge an identity. Up until this time, the only identity they've got is slaves. They don't have an identity. They don't, they don't have it in their DNA that we are God's people. 
And one of the reasons that we are very intentional about singing psalms, hymns, both traditional and more current, is because, beloved, this is your story. You. And, and the, did you see that in Hebrews? This is, you've got to be blind to, to not see that the entire scripture gives this whole Exodus narrative as your story and my story. And so singing songs that reflect the history of the church, that reflect the history of God's people in response to redemption, is, I hope, grounding us in this identity. The writer of the Hebrews says, our fathers fell in the wilderness. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, that rock followed them in the wilderness. That rock was Christ. Jesus, out of Egypt, have I called my son. That's why Mary and Joseph took him down into Egypt to get away from Herod. Yes, it was a real event. Yes, it was a real historic event. But the purpose of it is to highlight this whole Exodus thing and how the Exodus is your story and my story. The water, the thirsting for water. Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman at the well. She is dialed into her physical reality. And Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Now do you think that Jesus is talking about Jack and his magic beam. No. (laughs) He's making a fairly obvious spiritual point using the woman's thirst and using the difficulty of getting water and her desire for water to make this very obvious metaphor. And so, beloved, it is not a leap to take this narrative and then to say the Scripture treats this as indicative of our spiritual condition. Because this desert wandering here, this this difficulty that they encounter in the desert is not the only time. I've, I've already, you know, if you've been with us for a while, you already know how my brain works. About this portion in a book, I'm trying to think, okay, what's next? Uh, Where am I going to go next? And I still haven't figured that out. Uh, Typically, I do Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. But really, after Exodus, there's a lot of different ways that we can go. One is to go to Numbers. Because Numbers circles back around and does the same stuff that Exodus is speaking about, but it does so a few years later. And so we actually have the exact same situation, the exact same setting. But in numbers, it's handled very, very differently. Another way to go is really at the end of Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, it just segues immediately into Joshua. And so, you remember, Josh, you remember how Joshua closes? 
You remember the closing? Everybody's got... You, you may not be able to answer me right now, but as soon as I say it, you'll go, oh yeah. The, the closing words of Joshua before he dies is the great challenge, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will it be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or will it be the gods of your fathers back in Egypt? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the challenge that Israel is continually facing here. Who are we and who are you going to serve? And here in this portion of the desert, God encourages, He strengthens, He says, I'll take care of you. But a couple of years later, they haven't learned their lesson. Numbers chapter 11, you know, that, that whole manna thing was beautiful, wasn't it? Remember that from last week? Bread rains down from heaven. It tastes sweet like honey. Now, any parent can completely understand what happens when you give your children this delicious bread from heaven that tastes sweet like honey. It's got a cake-like flavor. They don't have to go out and do anything but gather it and cook it. And they do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. For two years, they're eating manna from heaven. What happens by Numbers chapter 11? Anybody want to take a guess? I'm sick of manna. I am tired of manna. Give me something decent. I want meat. I am done with manna. Give me some meat. And so do you remember what God does in Numbers chapter 11? Alright, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat till it runs out your nostrils. I'm going to bury you in meat. And it causes quail to die, presumably by the millions. The ground is saturated with dead quail. These same quail that in chapter 16 are a beautiful provision that fly in at dusk and just basically beg to jump onto the skewer and be part of a tasty meal. In Numbers chapter 11, they're maggoty. (laughs) They cause people to die. The same desert, the same experience, in one is a backdrop for God's provision and encouraging the people to trust in Him. And in the other is a backdrop for God's condemnation. And as you know, the rock happens again. Not there in Exodus chapter 11, or Numbers chapter 11. Happens later on in Numbers chapter 20, I believe. Where Moses is told not to strike the rock, but rather to speak to it. And he's to go and speak to the rock. Now it's interesting... In this passage, Moses is told to strike the rock. Moses is in fear for his life. He says, these people are about to stone me. And God says, take your staff, do this in a public venue, bring the elders. I want this to be a public display. I don't want there to be any doubt in anybody's mind exactly what happened and how it happened. You are to strike the rock and water is going to gush forth. 
That takes some faith on Moses' part, doesn't it? That takes some trust on Moses' part. There is no scientific... And and I, I have heard so many, quote-unquote, scientific naturalist explanations for all these events in Exodus, and I think 100% they're pure garbage. Uh, they, they just do... The, the Nile turning into blood was not a red tide. Uh, and I've, I've heard this passage preached where uh, hydrostatic pressure, uh, because Moses wandered in the desert, he knows about how limestone can, can soak up uh, hydrostatic, or the hydrostatic pressure pushes water up, particularly into limestone formations. And it's well known that if you whack the limestone at just the right spot, it'll flake off and water will come. It doesn't feed hundreds of thousands of people. I might be able to get a handful of water out of a piece of rock out in the desert somewhere. Not this. Exodus chapter 7 is not naturalist. This is a miracle. And Moses has to put his reputation and life on the line. That God is going to do what he says he'll do. Same setting. He then disobeys. God says, speak to the rock. And Moses goes, yeah, I get that. But man, that whole rod thing, that was a cool visual. I like that one. That's impressive. That's dramatic. I take my rock, bam, water, gush forth. Now you just want me to talk to the rock? My way is much more interesting, much more dramatic. Because he disobeyed God, he's not allowed to go into the promised land. God demands absolute obedience, he demands faith, and he demands trust. And these desert experiences are those experiences that reveal to us our own hearts. The way in which we are either like the Israelites falling in the wilderness, or where we are saying, Yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I'm thirsty. But my life is in God's hands. And he will provide. The answer that the children of Israel ask there at the end of this passage, is the Lord among us or not? Now, we know the answer, don't we? I mean, it's kind of a dumb question. This is the God who visited all those plagues on Egypt. This is the God who six weeks ago brought them through the Red Sea and destroyed all Pharaoh's armies. This is the God who just, at their previous encampment, started raining bread from heaven. These very people took the energy to formulate this question from the bread that they had just picked up. (laughs) They had just gathered the manna that morning to sustain them for their rebellion. (laughs) The strength to rebel was coming from the nourishment of the bread that God had rained on the ground around them. And they asked this dumb question. Was God among us or not? Beloved, before we look down our noses at them, How about you? How about me? 
Circumstances are not playing out. There are actual true evils. There are injustices. And so our response is, God doesn't care. God's not strong enough. God is a God of love. He would not allow this evil thing to happen to me. He would not allow this evil thing to happen in the world. If God is good, why do bad things happen? That's a question that people ask all the time. It's a question that, particularly for young people, particularly for young people, I think it's the question that often tips them into denying Christ and denying their their salvation. Because this desert, this dryness, this thirst, this hunger is unpleasant. I do not like it. And I'm not going to say to you, you're just looking at it wrong. These people are thirsty. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying their physical thirst. These people are hungry. That's a reality for them. But there's got to be something at the core of each one of you. That when Jesus looks at you and says, so are you going to leave me too? That you say, where else would I go? You alone have the words of truth. Because, beloved, whether or not you are clinging to Christ, whether or not Christ is real to you, He is the one who rose from the dead. This is not metaphorical, this is true. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. If, in fact, Jesus is not risen, then you are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, He is risen. This is actual reality. This is the truth. And so, in those deserts, in those hunger periods, in those thirsty periods, you and I ask the exact same question. Don't come down on these guys. Where's God in this? Where's God in this broken marriage? Where's God in this financial disaster? Where's God in this horrible thing? Where is He in this? The answer is, I can't tell you. I can't tell you the specifics. That is peering into the mind of God. What I can tell you is who else you're going to go to. Jesus alone has the words of life. It may take you a long time to figure it out. To figure out what God is doing. It may take you a lifetime to figure out where the water is and where the manna is. But beloved, stay the course. 
Because these children of Israel are telling your story. They're telling my story. The story of a people delivered from sin, slavery, and death. The story of a people redeemed, given God's direction for their lives. And the story of a people brought home.